Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Drew Taylor, who's the CEO of Acorn Biolabs. I'm going to talk about how people can bank their stem cells in a non-invasive way. So, Drew, thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Rich. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and then how you came to Acorn there. Yeah, so uh, I my background was always on the healthcare side. I kind of followed in in my dad's footsteps. He was a physician and and had also played baseball. So I, I went down to the University of Michigan and and uh, had the opportunity to play baseball for them and worked hard and and did a undergrad and masters in molecular cell developmental biology and was going to head off to medical school and and become a, a physician. And I ended up having a, a pretty unique opportunity that provided a, a bit of a, a fork in the road for me career wise. But I, I was offered a, a chance to play professional baseball with the Toronto Blue Jays. And so it was an amazing opportunity. But unfortunately, they, they wouldn't let me pursue medical school at the same time. I, I did ask, but they said no. That would be tough to do both tough. of those things. It would be tough. Yeah. But I still I still asked. And so they said no, but they did say that they would be more open to me pursuing a PhD at the same time. And so I thought that was a fantastic opportunity for me to continue my education while also really giving a shot at professional baseball. And so I ended up joining uh, uh, University of Toronto in uh, biomedical engineering and started a PhD while I started playing in the minor leagues for the uh, for the Blue Jays. And that was where I had my real first push, like full on into the world of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. Well, why that particular area? What fascinates you about that? Yeah, so it was, it, I mean, you have to go back even further, like the original fascination was all the way back in, in grade seven, when at a school-wide science fair ended up having to choose something mechanical that we would break down and present as as our project. And I, being so drawn to medicine, chose a total knee arthroplasty, so a fake knee, and was able to go in, witness a surgery, watch everything happen. And and obviously, like, what an amazing experience for this project. And and that was where I really first kind of got introduced to an OR and, and patients, like really, you know, obviously at, at arm's length, but uh, but right in front of my eyes. And it was there talking to the physician about these knee implants that they were putting in that really started me thinking about, you know, our biology and the ability to use cells for some of these solutions, because they had said that, look, we're, we're going to deliver a, some an amazing opportunity for this patient and, and really give them the ability to, to walk again and, and without pain, but it's only going to last so long. You know, these implants do break down in about 10, 15 years. We'll have to 
treat them again. And at some point it'll be impossible because we lose bone stock and, and there's complications every time we try to do this. And they put the idea in my head. They said, look at in your lifetime, you're going to see us put in biologic tissue replacements, not metals and plastics, but give a patient back their own cartilage, their own bone, their own cells. And hopefully that will be a lifelong solution for them. And yeah, so years ago, I remember I tore my ACL and they were going to, they could do a cadaver tendon or, the, you know, what they did is they took the middle third of my patellar tendon and strung that right. through as a new ACL. But I'm sure what you're about to propose is far better. No, I'm mean, looking at that. That's a fantastic opportunity. I think we can strengthen some of these, these techniques by leveraging, you know, our own cells and supporting that area and stem cells. But ultimately that's kind of what was done, right? That's a, an, an in the moment tissue engineering strategy where we're taking tissues from an area of your body where you are able to lend them from and use them to replace, you know, ultimately a, a ligament that has failed us and, and actually give you that, that ability to, you know, to, to use your knee again fully. So it is a, it's an, a remarkable, you know, field, but I think that we're at this moment now I've, you know, been able to witness it from all the way back in, in grade seven, talking to some of these surgeons where it was just an idea to today, where we are starting to see human applications and delivery of these techniques for, for patient benefit, which is really an exciting right. time. Well, just to give a little context, I had my knee done about 24 years ago. What what has changed? Like if I went to go do it today, what would I experience differently? Well, I think there's today, I mean, there's a bit of an evaluation on on where is the appropriate source and, and that probably would have been done back then. But again, we've we've learned a little bit more about some of the complications that people have. And one of the other popular areas to take is is from the hamstring tendon. And so depending on what you want to do, you know, in your life or if you're an athlete, oftentimes that can, you know, we can take into consideration some of those um, those decisions on where to to take the, the donor tissue from. But there are, you know, some really interesting strategies right now that are mostly in trials and, and, and you know, being explored right now where we can actually use a patient's own stem cells. And in, in the case of it being, you know, an ACL tear, it would be mesenchymal stem cells that are able to, one, strengthen the anchors where, you know, new ligament is going to be attaching onto bone, as well as reduce inflammation in the knee as well, so that you can get some quicker repair and, and faster return to sports or, or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're doing. So when transplants are done now, you know, whether it's a tendon or whatever it is, are stem cells also injected as well? Does that is it like a combined protocol that helps to heal or is this an instead of? Thing? No, no. Yeah. So there's not an instead of yet. So ultimately we still need a rigid structure that is going to serve the function of that ligament. And so without that, you know, you have to engineer that in a lab, right? You know, you'd have to engineer that in a lab prior to implantation, like injecting stem cells that are loose cells or aqueous cells is not going to you know, ligament or a tendon for you. So you do have to engineer these things outside of the lab, but that is going on in a number of different areas. Tendons a little bit, I think, you know, I would have to like dive in to see what, what work is going on there currently, but you know, I'm well aware of a number of uh, patients. In fact, 12 patients in North Carolina that from a sample of those patient cells, they were able to 3d print human bladders and essentially replace a bladder that was not functioning for the patient. And these are not life-saving organs, but these are the things that we're seeing come to fruition very quickly. Obviously you start in areas that, you know, are not necessarily going to be life-threatening, but you're able to prove out this ability to 3d print and culture tissues prior to implantation. And the bladder was a really good example of that. And those patients that received it got the ability to control urination back. So obviously a huge boost to their quality of life. Here in, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and amazing collaboration between two universities up here, leveraged a patient's own skin cells to recreate 
3D printed patches of skin so that we could actually treat them for severe burns. So amazing, you know, leaps forward that have happened. And I think that one day we'll see this kind of pervasively across all tissues in the body. Um, certainly there are groups working on, on pretty much every imaginable area and how we can leverage our own cells to, uh, to recreate, you know, everything from, from uh, you know, small environments and, and clusters of cells all the way through to entire organ systems. So what would happen today if I got uh, like a total knee replacement? Would they inject stem cells in the area and would that improve the healing? You know, would this... Again, now, once you have a solid object, the knee replacement, yeah. um, is there any reason or need or improvement to also inject stem cells alongside of it? Yeah, so I think that right now we're not seeing these things because more of the fact that all of these new technologies have to go through regulatory bodies that make sure that they're serving the patients you know, safely and efficaciously. And so routinely, we are not injecting stem cells for otherwise beneficial procedures like a, a knee replacement. That may change in the very near future as we continue to see the benefits of combining and even leveraging some of these therapies on their own. So the ability to add stem cells from that patient, right? So these are autologous stem cells, not donor cells, can provide massive benefits from reducing inflammation to actually strengthening some of the tissues around it. And even those mesenchymal stem cells, you know, one of the things that is being looked at from them is their ability to differentiate further into the types of tissues that you need, mostly being cartilage, bone, cartilage and bone for that. So absolutely lots of possibilities, but it is not something that people are routinely receiving as they go in for, for a knee replacement or, or an ACL repair. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent, plus shipping and handling, at GeniusPollen.com. Well, hopefully soon. So your company, what people will have stem cells extracted from themselves, they'll be banked, cultured? Yeah, so ultimately... Uh, differentiated? Yeah, ultimately, I, I think for a little context, what I what my role going into Mount Sinai and that tissue engineering group um, after I did my PhD, my role was to actually translate some very very successful animal studies into human models, and so we were able to regrow cartilage in in a number of different animal studies. And now it was, okay, can we translate this to human cells? So I got my clinical fix, which was fantastic. I got to go back into the OR and take biopsies of cells from patients that were undergoing total knee replacements and hip replacements. And then I would take those cells back to the lab to see if in practice we could culture those cells out and recreate the tissues that we would need so that one day... The idea being to, instead of putting the metals and plastics, actually replace that knee with a patient's own cartilage and put that back and, and give them th their own tissues back. Very ambitious project. Obviously, there were some hurdles to face, but the biggest thing that we realized was the influence of age on the ability for us to actually have these cells respond in culture and create the tissues that would be needed. And so before we would think about actually implanting, we had to be able to success successfully recreate these tissues for patients on demand. And all of the animal studies had been done in juvenile animals, so basically teenagers. And then now I'm going into the OR and taking cells from a patient at their time of need, usually older in life, usually facing, you know, challenges like osteoarthritis, bone on bone, just, you know, wear and tear, cartilage loss over the years. And so I'm taking cells at their absolute worst and older cells, and I'm asking them now to perform again at their best. And so it just didn't work very well. 
know, the young animals were growing great. So we ended up getting older animals and getting some younger human cells. And of course, the exact opposite happened. And so what it was for me, it was a really kind of sad moment in my career, to be honest, because I sat back and I said, look at not just us, but groups all around the world are working on some of these amazing strategies to literally allow for patients to recreate tissues on demand for themselves. You know, a group in Tel Aviv is, is 3D printing miniature human hearts right now. And one day that will be upscaled to a full human heart with the potential of, of saving a life group down the hall was working on recreating kidneys. All of these things. Uh, are I don't mean to interrupt you, but what was sad about it? What do you mean? When, well, when you have a younger because, animal and you put in because in all of the animal, it hurts the animal or what do you mean? No, no, because all, all of these patients in their time of need, we are not going to get the response or the growth from the cells that are required to deliver the therapy. Any response or no response or a negative response? Well, it's a, it's a, it was a scaled response dependent on age and then off, obviously complicated with the the onset of diseases like osteoarthritis. And so everybody's going to react differently, right? Like, you know, we've come across, you know, 80 year old people that seem young and spry and we come across, you know, 40 year old people that are not that healthy, right? And 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 can't keep up with that 70 year old. So I think that, you know, it, it is a, a variety of things that is dependent on the individual, but on average, we see the largest, deepest decline of the populations of adult stem cells patients around the age of 65. So that's a, a good benchmark of when we start to see the changes pick up pace, I would say. So it is it is definitely something that for me that that sad moment was the fact that patients are going to come to us in their time of need. And we're going to tell them essentially, well, you know, this would be an option, but you're not a good candidate because your cells are either too damaged or too old. And so the real only strategy as we sat back and discussed this was, well, can we intercept that aging process? And can we actually make sure and ensure that these patients have access to younger cells that they can use for these? Because we're not manufacturing a drug, right? This isn't a pharmaceutical. Um, this is a tissue engineered material. This is regenerative medicine. It is completely dependent, not on the quality or purity of, of chemical compounds to create a drug. It's dependent on the quality of the starting material, which is now cells. So the better cells we have, the better end results we're going to be able to deliver to that patient. And so the way to do that is to try to stop, you know, aging as, as for these patients on a subset of their cells. And that was really the first kind of ideas for me about what has now become ACORN. I ended up meeting a couple other individuals that were working passionately on this project at, a, at another university. And, and we joined forces to try to, to deliver a method where patients could non-invasively, simply and painlessly be able to tuck away a sample of their own cells that were appropriate for leveraging in the future in all of these techniques. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems, uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help. Keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. So, ideally, if you're, let's say, 18 years old, you want to have your, you know, some cells extracted and banked so that as you get older, you got really great 
healthy cells that you could put back into yourself. Yeah, look at, I mean, 18 would be fantastic, but ultimately there's going to be a huge difference between us at 60 and 80. There's going to be a huge difference in us at 30 to 60, right? Like, so it's really as early as you possibly can to do this because these are cumulative changes that happen throughout our lives. Do you see that pace pick up on degenerative changes and the loss of adult stem cells around 65, but that varies and we have patients that have decided to bank themselves well above that into their 80s because their mindset is, look, I want to be here as long as I can. I, I'd like to do everything I can contribute to, to being able to fight disease, you know, stay as, as young and spry as possible. And, and my cells at 80 are going to be a lot better than they are at 90. So, you know, we don't have an age cutoff of individuals and when they can participate, but certainly there's a bit more sense of urgency, you know, before 65, but a lot of parents will actually work with us to get their cells bank and then also, you know, offer to their children as well, whether they be young adults or teenagers and, and often have give them the opportunity to bank their cells because I don't know about you, but when I was in my, my teens and twenties, I certainly was not thinking about my own mortality. Yeah. I just figured, oh, it's way in the future. Right. Now I'm 47, I'm like. Oh, no. Yeah, I still have a bit of an invincible mindset back then. So no, it's just really a fantastic opportunity to take out a biologic health insurance policy to make sure that all of the opportunities that you have, especially in, in tissue engineering, regenerative medicine, and this amazing field in science that you're going to be able to actually take advantage of the next generation of medical therapies. So how does the process work? Someone says, all right, I want to do it. What yeah. happens then? Yeah. So um, ultimately, we work with a, a number of uh, fantastic physicians, a lot of them that work in skin, because that's where we're going to be taking the samples from. And that's where a lot of the initial opportunities for leveraging them are quickly. It's a lot in aesthetics and sports medicine. And so physicians or clinics will offer the service to take that sample of cells. And like I said, it's painless and non-invasive. We target the hair follicle. And so the hair follicle is this mini organelle that literally feels like it was designed specific, specifically for this. It has multiple germ layers of cells within it. It's the highest concentration of adult stem cells in our skin and one of the highest in the human body in a small space. And those cells are very robust, will expand readily in culture, can be cryopreserved easily, and they expand and can be reprogrammed. So they really are this kind of all-in-one package of being an ideal cell source for us to save. But really, like what's super exciting is that patients don't mind giving it up, right? I mean, we're, when we're thinking about drilling into your iliac crest to harvest bone marrow or liposuction for fat, the ability to pluck hair follicles from the back of your scalp, you know, and you barely feel it. Knowing yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. I was going to say to you, there's, there's a company that does harvest them from your bone. Yeah. So yeah. What, what are there trade-offs? So I think that I would say that the trade-offs are if you're going to use the exact specific cell type for a therapy. So for instance, if you were trying to treat, for instance, leukemia and you needed a bone marrow donation, obviously having your bone marrow is going to be an advantage because you don't need to make any manipulations to the other cells. So those types of things are either here now or coming very quickly. But again, that benefit for you know targeting bone marrow specifically is offset because the hair follicle has a number of advantages of its own that are certainly a lot more likely to face in your life, right? So these cells have been targets for skin rejuvenation and for aesthetic purposes, hair regrowth for, for either men or women that are experiencing you know, hair loss or balding. The cells themselves in our hair follicles do have concentrations of mesenchymal stem cells. These are very powerful cells similar to what is in bone marrow. It's the same cell type, just another population area that we have in our body. We routinely reprogram these cells. We can push the cells, mesenchymal stem cells, without reprogramming into 
into fat, bone, cartilage. There's also um, a neuronal cell population in the hair follicle, and you can create neurons. Um, and we've even recently started working on uh, dopaminergic releasing cells created from the hair follicle. So, you know, you're starting to think about having a cell source that has the widest breadth of really being able to address any area in your body. And that's why we are very excited about this population. Um, is there any trade-off in the um, ability of you to induce pluripotency? Like can these um, air follicle mesenchymal cells become anything in the body? Yes. Uh, and are yes. you looking so for we, limits? Yeah. So we, we test that a fair bit, right? And obviously these are long-term strategies because anytime you're inducing pluripotency in a cell, it does come with risks if you ever are going to put them back into a patient, right? And specifically, one of the you know big ones is the uh, creation of a tumor or teratoma, right? And so, and you don't want the wrong cells in the wrong place. And these cells have you know such high potential. Um, you know, you you want to take those risks very seriously. So we look at those things as long term strategies. Obviously, you know, using the cells for skin and hair is sh- is very short term and, and are coming extremely quickly and are already being benefiting patients today um, that do have access through trials and studies. The mesenchymal stem cells that are in these follicles, I think, are very interesting for sports med in the short term. But long-term reprogramming of cells is absolutely something that we continue to kind of push the limits on to make sure that these cells are appropriate for a variety of different things. And just recently, one of our strategies and and joint partnerships actually with University of Toronto and Mount Sinai Hospital was reprogramming um, the hair follicle cells and then pushing them down pathways to create pancreas progenitor cells. So this is the idea that one day you could either create specifically the islet beta cells that produce insulin or even reconstitute and create, you know, an entire pancreas. And so approaching and, and challenging things like diabetes with, with strategies like that. So long-term, but very exciting possibilities. So these are autologous cells. Why, why is there uh, not FDA approval seemingly to do this, to re-inject them back in? Or is there just under certain conditions? It's under certain conditions, right? And so you can put back in autologous material um, into a patient right now within 24 hours, right? So PRP is a very common example of that, right? It's kind of the intro regenerative medicine strategy that is here. And so you can, you know, walk into an aesthetics clinic or a sports medicine clinic, and oftentimes they will offer PRP injections where essentially you spin down your blood, get rid of the red blood cells, and then re-inject this concentrated plasma that's rich in growth factors, delivers some, you know, anti-inflammatory ability as well as some growth factors to the area to incite healing and and all sorts of uh, benefits. It's very variable, right? So um, not every patient gets the results they want from it. And I think a lot of that is dependent on the health in that moment for that patient, right? You know, I've seen it work exceptionally well with young athletes, and yet some elderly patients that have tried PRP have not had as good of results from it. So it is variable. That being said, I think that for us, you know, thinking about how we leverage our cells to create, you know, better versions of this, there's the opportunity to grow the cells and harvest the byproducts of the cells, the the matrix molecules, the growth factors that those cells give off. And so one of our strategies that we think is, I would say, one of the things that would be the safest and and therefore the, the quickest pathway through regulatory concerns is to actually use the cells essentially as factories to create the things that we become deficient in as we age. And so one of the strategies we're working on specifically in aesthetics and skin and hair loss, where you, you use these cells to, to create a solution just like PRP and can, that can be delivered in the same ways as PRP, but has a multifold factor higher volume of growth factors and even has matrix components in it itself, but still no live cells. 
So you, you, um, are, you, are, you are you culturing the cells? So if you take out a million cells, are you trying to put back in 10 million or are you not even allowed to do that? It, again, there are, there are pathways that you can do those things, but you, you know, I think they're very specific, right? Today. It sounds like there needs to be some adjuvants, especially for, you know, older or unhealthy individuals. There's something, I guess, in the, you know, the self-to-self signaling that's functioning better in a young athlete than a, you know, older, let's say sedentary person. Is anyone looking into, again, adjuvants or other things that would increase the signaling so that this works for older or unhealthy people? Yeah. Oftentimes it's molecular cues, right? So for, for some of the work that we're participating in and, and it has been done by some some groups uh, down at uh, University of uh, sorry North Carolina State um, was actually demonstrating the ability of when you do give these growth factors and matrix macromolecules back to the skin that was done in animal studies um, you saw the native cells that are present start to get better at producing some of those same things like collagen right so every year that goes by your skin produces about one percent less collagen than it used to so this is something we lose as we age and so the reintroduction of these you know essentially growth factors and some of the the macromolecules and matrix uh, incite the cells to actually kind of i don't know relearn how to produce higher volumes of these things so i think that those those elements now these are were factors that were banked ahead of time, saved and delivered from like a younger time period. So I think that that there's more and more increasing evidence to show that that you know having your own younger material saved is is really the way to go. I know this is speculation, but is anyone looking into either stimulating or minorly suppressing the immune system at the time when you're putting back in the stem cells? Do you think either would have a beneficial effect or the answer doesn't lie there? So that would only have a beneficial effect and is actually necessary if you were receiving donor cells, right? So if you're receiving your own cells, the immune system would not respond to them negatively because they'll identify them as your own material. But ultimately, if you're trying to receive a donor cells, right? So for all of the therapies that are approved right now where you can receive donor cells or donor transplants or any of those things, we put the patient on immunosuppressants to bring down their immune system so that they won't reject the organ or the treatment. That's hard on the patient already, right? So suppressing the immune system and Unfortunately, leaves them susceptible to disease and, and infections. And so I've unfortunately I've seen it in my career where patients on immunosuppressants have, have really not fared well because they uh, they ultimately succumb to something else like you know the common cold developing into pneumonia, for example. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I don't know what in the scientific literature and the thought space, like what is being considered to help again as an adjuvant to make this process work better. I'm sorry, which process? Oh, you know, in in the future or now or in the future when, you know, cells are taken out, either cultured or processed in some way, whatever is legal, and then put back into a patient who is working on, again, possible adjuvants or things that could accompany the reinjection of the autologous cells, the stem cells to make it more efficacious, to make it work better. Yeah, so we, we work on those things routinely as well. I think a lot of people are are working on on strategies like that. We certainly have one ourselves on on a delivery method and how those cells are suspended and re-put back in. There are some publications there um, that have been been uh, released. Use you know a number of different support structures, right? So whether it's hydrogels or or different compounds that allow those cells to retain. Um, in place and not get washed away when they're injected into the areas where you want them to stay in a very specific spot. I, I wouldn't call them necessarily stimulants of the cells then performance, 
but they're more facilitating the cells to be able to be in the place where they're supposed to, to do their job. Well, if, if um, you know, if I tear cartilage in my knee, stem cells will be what called in to the site mm-hmm. to try to help repair it in part. Mm-hmm. But I guess you're injecting them into the site. So why would they migrate away if there is a wound there? Well, you know, why is it important to keep them in place? Why you know, do they tend to migrate and where? Yeah, so, the, so absolutely there are cues that allow for stem cells that are either commonly circulating in the body or in localized areas to migrate to the site of injury. And so a good example for that would be in the skin, right? So when we cut our skin, most of the stem cells that migrate to that wound to help it heal actually migrate out of the hair follicle to that area. And that was something that was just recently shown in the past um, I don't know, handful of years. And so absolutely this migration happens and this happens in every tissue of our bodies. Um, not every molecular cue has been perfectly described, right? We certainly know that there's this homing mechanism that exists in stem cells, and there are specific molecules and factors that act as those signaling um, um, events, right, to to help those cells to migrate to the site of, of injury. You know, when you inject a high volume of cells in a small space, that's different than the homing mechanism, you're putting them there. And your body is naturally either experiencing damage or inflammation. And therefore, there is a tremendous amount usually of, you know, swelling and extra fluid that continually gets washed away. And so if you're using them to treat injuries or trauma, ultimately, there is the risk based on the the body's natural, you know, response of swelling and creating fluids to fill that area and, and kind of, you know, um, flood it with, especially during trauma, right, lymphocytes. But you end up kind of having those cells dissipate in concentration right? The ones that you add. So those are things where, you know, when you introduce some of the hydrogels and certain things that you can try to keep them in place so that they don't migrate away as easily and they're able to stay there and, and do their job. Absolutely. There are groups that are working on seeing if you can replicate those cues. And so that by adding a cue, you can hopefully attract more of your own native population of stem cells. The problem with that though, is we've seen very clearly that as we age, not only the response of our stem cells, but their volume itself is decreasing in our bodies. And so if they're not there anymore or they're in high enough volume, you know, we, we can attract them as much as we want. The volume that we're going to get and the response we're going to get is, is um, unfortunately not going to be as much as we need. And so that's why the potential of adding them as we age um, is, is extremely attractive. Right. Uh, what about the extracellular vesicle production of stem cells? You know, in culture, I'm sure it's different than, you know, in the body, but, you know, have you or anyone, um, again, try to culture someone's stem cells and then harvest the exosomes and mass and put those in as well to help? Yeah, absolutely. So exosomes is a whole topic on its own, honestly. Um, And uh, exosomes are produced by multiple cell types, not just stem cells, but stem cells seem to produce them in much higher volume. I mean, exosomes is essentially just like a a budding off or or the, you know, a a vesicle, right, with a a, a phospholipid bilayer that is wrapped around them or phospholipid layer that allows it to kind of act as an envelope and deliver a package. So exosomes themselves are meaningless because it's just the packaging. But what's inside those exosomes is extremely interesting from a therapeutic perspective. And so obviously, if there are, you know, proteins, growth factors, or even sequences of mRNA as they routinely carry, um, if they are the right ones that we need in an area of, uh, of that we're trying to treat, 
um, that delivery, that payload going to that area through exosomes is a very targeted delivery because that exosome is essentially going to go and deliver its contents to a cell. I love exosomes. I also think that it's become a bit of a buzzword. And so we need to be careful about how we think about them therapeutically, because absolutely there's been evidence and publications that have come out recently that have even shown segments of mRNA from Parkinson's coding regions of our genome. They can be carried by exosomes. So I don't think that they are like they're touted as 100% safe. I would say if they're your own exosomes, absolutely they're 100% safe. But, you know, we, we need, do need to be careful about how we think about these things just just because they're not a live cell does not mean that they are completely safe. There's still a lot of work to do. That being said, your own exosomes, I think, is a really interesting and fantastic way where, you know, if there are uh, segments of mRNA within them, they are your own. And so there's there's no risk there. It also depends on what cell they come from. And so I've seen a lot of, you know, work right now commercially on mass producing exosomes from donors and lyophilizing them, so freeze-drying them, dehydrating them, and then delivered that as a, as a treatment for skin and, and hair and things like that. Mm. All, most of the groups that I see, or most of the sources that I see in this strategy, they're mostly um, you know coming from outside of North America, and most of them are being derived from a very easy cell type to access, which is adipocytes, so fat cells. And they're produced en masse from these fat cells. And so there's no way that you can keep a cell line of these adipocytes going forever. So there's going to be batch variability that I think is really important to pay attention to. These exosomes are not going to be produced through, you know, they're not autologous. So they're, they are allogenic. So they're from another individual. And I do worry about certain things when you start thinking about mRNA and thinking about, you know, color of the skin color of your hair. If you're using these exosomes to treat skin and hair, you know, I think some of the risks that I see until we really understand the contents of these exosomes is discoloration. And so for people of color, I think it's something that I would be very acutely aware of. Most of the sources of these exosomes seem to be from, um, you know, Southeast Asian individuals. And so a lot of them are coming out of areas in Korea and, and places. And so you've got a very high chance demographically of knowing what the cell cell type is or the cell source is. Um, and I think that we just need to be thinking about demographics here and making sure that people are receiving the right types of, of treatments. And, and the only way to ensure that in my mind, and I'm a very big believer of this, is to generate those exosomes from autologous sources, meaning your own cells. Right. I, I think that people would say, oh, let's harvest the exosomes from stem cells. Um, but what about trying to harvest them from damaged tissue that you're trying to repair? Because, you know, in, in terms of cell to cell communication, I would think the damaged tissue would produce its own exosomes to call out for help, which would then be taken in by stem cells as they travel to the site. And then they know how to act or take action. So maybe both sides of the exosome production could be used, again, from the damaged tissue as well. I don't know if anyone's considering that. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I think the value of exosomes is sometimes comes when the cells are in a state of surplus, or their purpose is to do that. And most likely the damaged cells are not in that state to be pumping out exosomes full of positive things, because they're trying to, unfortunately, they're either in a state of self-destruction or survival, depending on, on how bad it is. But I'm saying it could be a call for help, you know, damaged tissue Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what their exosomes, you know, constitute. The, the payload of them is a call for help, which recruits 
stem cells to the area. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're putting in different things to make the stem cells stay in the area. But just an idea for you. Yeah, yeah. This is armchair speculation. Yeah, I know but, it's really you know perhaps the uh, the damaged thought. tissue is yeah would would keep them there because it's calling them to stay there in a way. You know, I mean, have to morphize them. You don't need to. Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting thought. I mean, like thinking about some of the cues that uh, cells present. You know, when there is damage and and recruitment of of uh, you know either lymphocytes or stem cells for healing. Um, trying to to leverage those in a format with exosomes is quite fascinating. Okay, so um, what is the role right now of acorn? Someone can go yeah. and <laughs> yeah. get their uh, their hair follicles, these cells harvested, but what can and what can't be done at this point? Yeah, so right, right, now, right now there's two sides of acorn. Um, the first side is is providing people the opportunity to make sure that they have the best chance of really receiving benefit from from these strategies in their in their lifetime, and that can be next year or years to come, and that's by you know, banking your youngest potential cells, which is today. So we offer that through a number of different clinicians um, to are in the aesthetic space, plastic surgery space, sports medicine space, and, and general medicine space. And so you can you can go to our website at acorn.me and learn a lot more about your opportunities in your area to visit a physician that offers this. It is very new, right? We only launched this in Canada in, uh, in February with a number of clinic partners. And uh, um, we're very excited to be launching in the U.S. before the end of this year. We already have uh, clinic uh, partnerships established in the U.S. And so best advice is if this is something that you want to jump on and have your cells banked right away is to go to acorn.me and sign up for our wait list. And essentially, as soon as it is available in your area, you will get an invitation to come to it and uh, and some nice perks and things. So it is, uh, it's an exciting opportunity to make sure that you're you know right in line. And we're v- coming very quickly. So that's something that uh, I'm very excited about in the near future here. The other side of, of acorn... Is it- is this for um is that is that for people in the US and Canada or where yeah where, um, yeah so it's it's available right now live in Canada in a, in you know the major markets and um, you can go to clinics in Toronto and Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver and and you know other areas and you can go online and see a number of them on top of that though in areas that we're not in in Canada you can also join that request access list and you'll get notified as soon as there's a clinic that's close by or uh, an opportunity in that city to uh, to get your cells banked. That is what is exclusively going on in the U.S. You can sign up to a list, and as as we launch in the U.S., you'll get notified first and offered the opportunity first to have your cells um, banked. And we're gonna have a, a number of clinicians already that uh, that will be offering it this uh, day one in the U.S. and and we're adding more as we get closer to uh, to launch before the end of the year. Okay, so perhaps by the end of this year in the U.S., there'll be at least certain locations where you can get it done. Or yes, absolutely. What do you think the timeline will be? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I my hope is that uh, you know, well before the holiday rush, you'll be able to do this um, before the end of the year. And so, you know, best thing you can do is just throw your name on the list so that you get notified right away. Obviously, there's going to be you know major cities where where you're going to be uh, um, able to get this probably first, but um, but we'll offer it regardless of your location and let you know where the closest place is to you. We certainly have had people oh, from excellent. the U.S. that have flown up to Canada to have this done or done it while they're visiting, you know, Toronto or Vancouver or something. So there's there's a number of people from the U.S. that uh, you know signed up and and looked at the opportunities and ended up uh, jumping across the border to do it right away. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Once the banking is done with Acorn, though, are 
are people able to request the cells? You know, like they have a doctor and yeah, some other place. Uh, can they make a request for the cells? And- yeah. So our, our, our very strong, um, you know, beliefs is these cells are yours. We are just the curators or the safeguard keepers of them. So ultimately we keep them tucked away and, and cryogenically preserved in, in liquid nitrogen. So their, their age and any damage is halted. Um, if you want your cells, we will deliver them back to you. And so at any point, um, you can request access to your cells. The other side of ACORN, like I was talking about, is actually developing some of these strategies and how we are going to leverage these cells in the future. And we've got multiple partnerships with some of the top universities in North America as partners in developing some of these strategies. And, and they are coming very quickly and are very exciting, especially in the world of aesthetic medicine. And then I think very closely after that, sports medicine. And so um, there is, you know, opportunities as a patient to even hear about new trials that we are are conducting with some of these partners. And it is, it, it's just an exciting way to keep like very involved in, in what is going on. And, and we obviously support, you know, the, the people that have banked the cells and make sure we deliver all that information to them. So they're very up to date on the progress. But those, those strategies, I think, in that other side of ACORN is, is goes hands in hand with having, you know, patient cells banked so that not only are we, you know, the safeguard keepers of their cells, but we can be ensuring that that patients have access to this next generation of healthcare and leverage their cells. And use them? Absolutely. How is the regulatory process looking? Is it is it very slow or is it possible yeah, in the next few years that there will be applications? Yeah, I think it's definitely possible in the next few years there will be applications. And like I said, I think that that's likely going to be leveraging the cells to create things that we become deficient in rather than reintroduce the cells back into our bodies. That will require a little bit more regulatory oversight. That being said, I think it's important as patients, we also be a little bit patient. These regulatory bodies are in place um, to protect us and make sure that we don't do things, you know, or we don't introduce therapies that can cause more damage than good. Obviously, I'm, I'm a very firm believer that, you know, people are in charge of their own bodies and, you know, people can do things to a certain extent for themselves and their health and, their, and it's their decisions to make. That being said, I think that there is a, definitively a place for these regulatory bodies to make sure that you know groups are acting above board and making sure that they're delivering the best therapy. I certainly appreciate um, their existence and, and work with them to make sure that what we are doing is you know well exceeding their expectations on diligence and and uh, and the benefit it'll deliver to patients. So it does take time to go through those processes, and depending on the invasiveness and depending on you know the manipulation that you're making to bank cells, it that really kind of influences how long some of these trials and some of these approvals will take. And so, like I said, we've got this very short-term focus on delivering benefit in in aesthetics and even sports medicine. We've got a midterm kind of focus on being able to deliver patients like mesenchymal stem cells back to them, you know, their their primary cells back to them for a number of different things. And then a long-term outlook where we manipulate the cells. So essentially reprogram them and turn them into pancreas cells or, or the like. And I think that that's where we really have to be patient because some of those things, um, you know, take time to prove out and make sure that, that it is going to help the patient. Yeah, it makes sense. So where can listeners go to sign up to get on the waiting list if they're in the U.S. or to actually get this done if they're in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. So you just go to acorn.me. Um, there's a bunch more information there, some cool articles and things if people want to dig in, as, as well as the opportunity to sign up with the request access link and see also if there is a location close to them, for instance, people in Canada or, or just across the border. On top of that, you can follow us on Instagram at Acorn Biolabs. My handle is Dr. Drew Taylor. And uh, we're on Twitter as well. I think on Twitter, I'm Drew W. Taylor. So a few different places that uh, that you can kind of follow updates. And, and look, I love posting, you know, 
you know, new discoveries, different updates and, and where, where this world is going. So I'm fairly new to, uh, to the social media world, but, uh, but I'm trying to, uh, share a lot of really interesting stuff that's going on. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Drew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a really interesting thing you guys are working on and I really hope it uh, becomes a widespread therapy. It's available for people. Yeah. It seems, so thank you. It seems that that's the, uh, the direction it's heading. It's uh, certainly been a, a wild ride for us in the past number of months since, since making it available. And, and all I can say is thank you so mm-hmm. much for the opportunity to come on and, and share what we're up to. I really appreciate it. Excellent. Remember before you go to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to geniuspollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit geniuspollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.